This is the word of the Lord. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. I want to turn over to the New Testament now. John chapter 3 verse 14 and 15. And see how Jesus declares that he is the fulfillment of this bronze serpent. John chapter 3, verse 14 and 15. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious God and Father, thank you for your word. And thank you for revealing to us who you are and who we are. We are those in need of salvation because of the poison of sin that has afflicted our very nature and lives. And so, Father, we ask that we would look upon Christ in faith continually, even as we have And that, Father, we would understand that it is in this way, absurd as it is to the unbelieving mind, that you are glorified and we are saved in the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. Help us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The message of the cross of Jesus Christ that God saves sinners through the death of his son is absurd to those who are self-deceived. It is foolishness to the Greeks. It is a stumbling block to the Jews. And the reason for that is because it's not that the death of Christ is in and of itself an absurdity or foolishness. It's not. It's the power of God unto our salvation. It's because the poison of sin has so affected the perception of the unbelieving mind. Their perception of life and death, of good and evil. The unbeliever whose darkened mind is gripped by hatred against God will never trust God. God to the unbeliever is not good, is not life, is not true. God rather is evil, unjust, a liar, very epitome of death. 
The unbeliever would say when confronted with Christ until and unless God's Spirit intervenes in their lives, they would say otherwise. But until that point, they would say, I'm all right. I'm okay. There's nothing wrong with me. And, and because we are illumined by the Spirit of God, because our hearts have been changed, because our eyes have been opened, because we see things as they really are, we would say, friends, you're dying. You, you've been bitten by a poisonous snake. You're, 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 you're not breathing. You're blacking out. What do you mean you're okay? You're dead in your sins. Perhaps they would say, I'm, I'm not well. Perhaps you're right. I am dying. But what I need is this other thing. This, this other salvation I've constructed for myself. I don't need God. I don't need his son. I don't need his word. I can save myself. And we would say, friend, you can't. You don't have the cure. You don't have the antidote. And God tells us very clearly this in his word this morning. That the only salvation man has is found in the cross of Jesus Christ. And until man humbles himself by the power of the Spirit humbling him, until man humbles himself and agrees with God that the cross is the judgment of God that he deserves, until man agrees that the cross is the salvation of God that he doesn't deserve, and that he believes in Jesus, completely trusting him with his life, that man, that woman remains condemned and in darkness. And that's what I want you to see from God's word this morning, beginning in Numbers 21, Israel's delusional discontentment with God. God's relationship to Israel has been one unbroken series of mercies, of goodness. God has been so good to Israel. He, he delivered them, right? It wasn't so long ago that we looked at the Exodus. God delivering Israel out of Egypt. God crushing the, the economy and the society of Egypt with ten plagues. Crushing the religion of, of Egypt. This, this false religion that had Pharaoh on top. The, the son of the sun god, Ra. And God says... Pharaoh is nothing. The gods of this world are nothing. And I'm here to show Egypt. I'm here to teach Pharaoh this very lesson. And the whole of the first part of Egypt is just God teaching the lesson again and again and again. That God is God, not Pharaoh. That God is God, not Israel. That Israel is to trust God for all of its salvation. And, and then Israel is led out of Egypt through the Red Sea crossing, this, this unparalleled, unprecedented event in human history, never before having been done, never having been accomplished by God. God's new works of salvation then issue forth in a new song of praise. Israel having crossed the Red Sea on dry ground. And the waters that had been parted come together and drown the whole of Pharaoh and his army. And then God giving them manna, giving them water. Right after that in Exodus 15, we're told that they're complaining about the bitterness of the water at a place called Marah, which means bitter. And God sweetens the water so that they can drink. God gives them manna, bread from heaven. Manna literally means, what is this? 
what is this? What, 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 what is this thing that came from heaven? Never before has God done this. God allows their clothing to grow with them. Their sandals, their footwear never is worn out. For 40 years, God is with them. And here now in Numbers 21, he continues to be with them, continuing to provide for them. Yes, all of Israel won't enter the land. Only Joshua and Caleb who believed God's promise. But nevertheless, God is still providing in mercy for his people. And here is a new generation on the scene of Israelites about to enter the land. And yet, and yet what happens? Although God has been good to his people, to Israel, we see that the people still have not learned God's relationship to Israel has been marked by goodness, but Israel's relationship to God has been characterized not with thanksgiving, but with grumbling, with discontentment, with complaining, with, with accusation against God. And here you see it in verse 4, verse 5 of our text. Israel, the people became impatient on the way. It's almost hard to call them Israel. It's almost hard to call them God's people. The people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against his servant. Even before the snake bites, right? The snakes are going to come. They're going to bite the people. Even before that, there's a poison inside of them that has made them seriously delusional. They say what to Moses? And really, they're saying it to God. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water. And we loathe this worthless food, this manna, this good gift from God. They are calling God's good gifts worthless. This is delusional. What they're saying is, obviously God has brought us here to kill us. That's been his purpose all along. God is not good. God is evil. God is not just. God is unjust. God is not truthful. He is a liar. He hasn't provided for us at all. And what we do have from God is worthless. You, you read these verses. And if, you, if you're reading them in the right mind, you, you, you understand the shock that this is. Have they not seen God's mighty works in the Exodus? Have they not seen and enjoyed God's good gifts? His abundant goodness in the desert? Manna, water, meat, footwear, tabernacle, sins forgiven, the Decalogue given to them, God's very presence in among them. This is a people that have suffered and are suffering from chronic spiritual forgetfulness. They have spiritual dementia, Short-term memory loss, long-term memory loss. They have forgotten God. They have forgotten everything that God did for them. And they hold God in contempt. This delusional discontentment of this people, you see, is but an echo of the very first sin all the way with Adam and Eve in the garden of God's perfect goodness. Think of that. Adam and Eve had everything. Adam and Eve had been given the world. God says you can eat of every tree, of every fruit, of every tree. This world is yours. I created this for you, for you to rule it on my behalf, that you would take dominion, that you would cultivate all of this. 
And what does Adam and Eve, what do they do? They grow discontented with God. And they hear the voice of that ancient serpent being bitten by it. Has God really said that? Right? The whole world is theirs, but they focus on the one prohibition. Right? You can't eat that thing. No, no. You can't trust God. You can't trust God. God, listen. Can I tell you something? God's holding something out. He doesn't want you to be like him. Okay, he's jealous. He's a tyrant. He's a slave master. But between you and me, if you eat of that, you will be like God. And that's why God has prohibited that. Your best life is disregarding God, who's a tyrant. And that is, beloved, echoed all throughout human history. And here what we see is but an echo of that serpent's siren song. In every human heart is manifested. It's manifested in every sin. This delusion that God is not God, that God is not good, that God is not just, that God is not merciful, that God is not trustworthy. And as a result, we complain against God. We're discontented against God. And you see this on a personal level. You see this on a societal level. You see this in the old. You see this in the youngest. In the children. You never have to teach them discontentment. Parents, this is, this is one of the most important lessons for you to teach your children. Contentment where, with God where God has placed them in life. Right? Listen, you give your child food, clothing, playtime. I I don't want that. I want this other thing I don't have. I'm not content with what I have. I want this other thing, right? No, 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 no. This is what God has given you. You may not despise it. You may not reject it. Saying, I want something else. I deserve something else, right? Right? And that which is bound up in the heart of a child just simply grows and is amplified, right? What is jealousy? What is envy? I deserve that thing. I deserve that status. I deserve that possession. I deserve that authority. I deserve that and I need that and I want that. That's mine. I need it. What is theft but this, right? I deserve what he has. I deserve what she has and I will take it for myself. I will steal it. I deserve it. It's mine. You see this on a societal level with our governing authorities, right? We know what is best. We deserve to rule you. We know what you need. We deserve to control your life. Is this not then also seen in in so many various sins? Adultery, infidelity. I deserve to be with that person, right? They they should be with me. Abortion. I deserve my career. I deserve my promiscuity. And if you think of sins in terms of delusional discontentment, you understand what transgenderism is as well. God made a mistake. God made a mistake. He gave me the wrong body. God is ignorant. God doesn't really know what I need. God doesn't really know what I want. 
And I deserve to be something I haven't been given by God. And this is idolatry at the most basic level. I don't need God. I don't need Jesus. I need myself. I will figure life out because I'm the king of my life. And God is ignorant. And God has made a mistake. This is, beloved, you need to see that this is in the world. This is the disease. This is the the poisonous bite of the serpent in this world. And it makes people delusional. And for us, the lesson is clear, even before we continue on in the text, that contentment in the Christian life, contentment is not a matter of what you have or don't have. Paul says in Philippians 4, I've learned to be content. I've learned to have much. I've learned to have little. I've learned to be rich. I've learned to be poor. I can sit and have dinner in in a throne In a chair that's encased by gold, I can have dinner, whatever crumbs I have on the floor. But I have joy always. Because it's not a matter of what you have or don't have. Don't ever make that mistake, brothers, sisters, of thinking, if only I had this thing, if only I had that thing, I would really be content. Right? And and we, we do this with God all the time. Lord, why did you make me this way? Why did you not give me these things, right? This spouse I have, I I don't have any money and my health is lacking, it's poor, right? Some of us might fantasize about living in a different time, right? As students of history, oh, that we would be in the founding generation. Some of us think, Lord, why did you put us in New Jersey of all places? Why am I here? The armpit of America. It's humbling for us former New Yorkers living in Jersey because we grew up our lives making fun of New Jersey. And here we are. Here we are. Lord, I wish that you would have saved me at a younger age. I'm too tall. I'm too short. My looks, my unbelieving family, my job, my suffering, my trials, my church. Lord. Right? No. He who complains against his lot in life complains against his maker. No, contentment is not a matter of what you have or don't have. Contentment is a matter of the heart. Have you forgotten the Lord? Have you forgotten the Lord? Have you forgotten that the Lord is good, that the Lord has saved you, the Lord has washed you? And what you have in Christ is infinitely more than what you don't have in the world or in other things. The Lord is your treasure. The Lord is your inheritance. The Lord is with you always. Beloved, we can never fall into this life of despair here in verses four and five. But what does God do? Continuing on verse six. God withdraws his hand of goodness. You're saying I'm not good? I withdraw my hand of goodness, of protection, of blessing. And I show you, God is saying, what you would experience, what your life would be like without me. And God then not only withdraws his goodness, but he sends them fiery serpents and punishes them with these these fiery serpents. Literally in Hebrew, it's uh, seraphim. These are seraphim. And the fiery Descriptor describes both the color of the serpents um, and the sharp pain that would have been felt as a person 
had venom beginning to race through their bloodstream. And then in verse 7, we're told that the people repent and ask Moses to pray to God. And so Moses, you see, is such a mediator. He, there are giants in the Old Testament. Abraham is one of them and Moses is the other, showing us what Jesus does. Moses here could have taken offense Moses could have said, no, this is what you deserve. I will not pray for you. I'll pray for you in one week's time. No, immediately he prays for the people and God hears the people for the sake of Moses. And what does God do? Verse eight, the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. It's a bronze serpent. Some translations say it's a brass serpent or a copper serpent. All right, it's a, it's a serpent that's made and constructed out of metal and put on a pole. You know, what's interesting here is that God doesn't just remove the curse of the fiery serpents. In fact, you realize the logic there that if he would have done that, those who had been bitten still would not have been healed. No, God allows the consequences of their sin to remain, but now he provides a cure and he instructs Moses to make this bronze serpent so that anyone who looks at it as they are bitten, looking at that bronze serpent, would live. And yet, how familiar is this Bible story to us that we don't understand the absurdity of it all? How absurd how absurd is this salvation to the human mind? How foolish for an Israelite who's been bitten. Lord, you want me to, I've been bitten by a poisonous snake and now you want me to look at a bronze serpent that resembles that which has cursed me, that has afflicted me and inflicted this fiery pain. You want me to look at this bronze serpent and live? It's foolishness. For the blind and the delusional minds, it was clear that Moses was tricking them. What, what, do, you, what do you mean, Moses? No, we're not. We're, we, won't, we won't look at this bronze serpent. But Israel must see this bronze serpent in order to live. And specifically, Israel was to see three things as they looked at this bronze serpent. The first thing they were to do was to see this bronze serpent and see God's judgment for their sins. They were to see that they were being afflicted with pain and death because they had sinned and now they were suffering under the judgment of God. We, we want salvation without judgment. Man wants salvation without God's wrath, without the cross, without blood. He wants a bloodless salvation, which is to say that he doesn't really want salvation. Man thinks his sin doesn't really exist or that his sin is not that bad. His son does not deserve God's judgment. No, but the Israelite in faith, the believing person would have understood as he looked at the bronze serpent. This is God's judgments upon me. I am suffering because of my grumbling, because of my hatred against God. And God has brought about this judgment. I'm writhing in pain and dying because of God's judgment for my sins. 
But more than this, Israel was to see not only the, ser- the bronze serpent and see God's judgment, they were to see the bronze serpent and see God's salvation. Yes, God has judged me. Yes, I deserve everything I'm receiving. But God has provided a way out. Now the only way to live is to look at this thing which reminds me of my sin, which reminds me of my judgment. I must look at this thing which is so, it would have been repulsive, it would have been hideous and ugly and gruesome. And I must must look at this bronze serpent and know and believe that God has forgiven me and taken my sins away. He's taken my judgment away. Israel must see the serpent and see God's judgment and and God's salvation, but they are to see that this demands their faith. You're dying. You've been bitten by a poisonous snake. How can you save yourself? You, You can't. You can't do anything to help your own cause, to help your own condition. But why would you? God has given the cure. Look to God and be saved. Look at this bronze serpent and live. And you see, Jesus on the cross tells us that he is the fulfillment as we consider John 3. He is the fulfillment of everything this bronze serpent points to. As Moses, he says in John 3, 14, lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. The the long history of God's relationship to man is one of unbroken goodness and mercy. Beginning way back in Genesis 1 and 2, God giving Adam, God giving mankind all good things. Yet the long history of mankind towards God is one of rebelling against his goodness, rebelling in light of his mercies grumbling against God's provision, rejecting God's blessings, worshiping his own will and his own desire. No, I won't worship God. No, I won't receive God's blessing. I will worship myself. I'd rather have Satan than Jesus. I'd rather have death than life. I'd rather have eternal misery than joy in Christ. Proverbs 8 tells us very clearly, those who hate me love death. And that is the history of mankind. But what does God do in mercy? In mercy appoints a savior by whom all can be healed of this curse of sin. Jesus is then lifted up like this bronze serpent, like in Israel of old. And as we see Jesus lifted up, we must see the same three things that Israel would have seen. We must see God's judgments. This is what we deserve. This is what our sins deserve. Those who break God's law deserve wrath, deserve condemnation, deserve hell. What we see on the cross is precisely that. The the gruesomeness of the cross is not merely in the physical bloody spectacle that it is. And it is that. It is that on the cross, Jesus is taking God's judgments. Thousands, perhaps even millions of people had been crucified in the Roman Empire. What makes Jesus' crucifixion any different? It's that here and here alone is God's wrath being atoned and propitiated and turned away. It's that here and here alone is a cup of God's anger being drunk 
to the dregs by Jesus, which is what we deserve. You must see the cross of Christ, beloved, and see not only what you deserve, but what you don't deserve. God's mercies, God's salvation, freeing us from the venom of the mortal snake bite of sin and death, God not counting our sins against us because he has laid them upon Christ, Jesus, who knew no sin. And, and, and sometimes we don't, Rush Dooney in one of his lectures says, we don't often want to go there. We don't want to compare Jesus to a serpent, but Jesus is inviting the comparison. Jesus who knew no sin is made sin by God. Romans 8, 3. He is sent in the likeness of sinful flesh. God is laying on Jesus our sins. God is regarding Jesus a sinner. God is regarding Jesus as a curse. God is regarding Jesus as deserving of death. Serpent-like. Because that's what we are. And Jesus is taking our place. In the words of 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake, he made him who knew no sin. God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin. To be sin. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. What does God give us instead what we deserve is death. What we deserve is eternal judgment. But what God gives us instead is his very life. The very obedience and righteousness of Jesus. God gives us, Jesus gives us his sonship. He is a son. He deserves to be son. He doesn't deserve death. But he gives us what we don't deserve to be called now. Children of the most high God. Jesus gives us the fatherly love that he has enjoyed from all eternity past. He says, as the father has loved me, the father loves you who are united to me. Jesus gives us, who look upon him in true faith, access to the father. So that now we, we come before the father, not in condemnation, not to be Judge not to be condemned eternally, not to be consumed because of our sins. We go to the Father because He is Father. He is our Father in Jesus Christ. We have access right to the throne of God and God the Son gives us. We could go on and list so many other things, but He gives us His resurrection. He gives us His victory. He gives us His strength. He gives us His life. But you see, you must trust Christ alone. You must see Jesus on the cross and you must say, that's what I deserve. But that's also what I don't deserve, his mercy and his salvation. And I must believe in Jesus alone and not perish. The bronze serpent is the only way to be cured from the poisonous snake bite. Jesus Christ lifted high, visible on the cross for all to see is our only salvation. The only way we can be cured from our sin and death. And yet, will man believe this salvation? Will man believe Jesus? And here we are confronted once more with the absurdity of the cross. That Jesus is given for the life of the world. If you still have your Bibles open to John, 7, John 3, verse 17. Look there. 17 and 18. 
Verse 17, what a remarkable truth. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Here is Jesus Christ, the savior of the world. Here is Jesus Christ who alone can give life, who alone can forgive us of our sins, who alone can cleanse this world of all unrighteousness. But verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Did Israelites refuse to see the bronze serpent in Moses' day? Do people refuse to believe Christ today? How absurd is this salvation that God has given us, Jesus on the cross, this, this God-man, perfect God, become man, crucified, bloodied on the cross for our sins. This, this is absurd. This is foolishness to the Greeks and a stumbling block to Jews. And yet, how much more absurd to reject the only salvation man has and to perish. And more and more, people of God, you must understand The foolishness of the gospel is becoming apparent more and more in our day. God's salvation never made sense to those who live in the irrationality of their minds. And in our day, when the irrationality has been sped up and accelerated and multiplied and amplified, there is, as it were, a greater and greater divergence between the gospel and the world. Look at a few passages from the letters to Corinth. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, verse 23. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Verse 23. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. The cross is foolishness. It's utter foolishness. And you need to know that because otherwise you will go into the world. You will go in your workplace with your family. You will will seek to preach, to speak the gospel of Christ to those who look at you as if you had three heads. You were completely out of this world. And, and, and of course, it makes sense to us who are in Christ. It is, not, it is not foolishness. It is not absurd. It is the power of God. It's our only salvation. We say we must cling close to Christ. But for those who are perishing, you need to understand it's foolishness. It's like saying, why don't you go ahead and amputate your arms? That's what the message of the cross is. And we say the message of the cross is a feast. It's our delight. It's our only life and happiness. But the world hears sorrow and evil. And God is unjust. And God is a liar. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. The same message is given by Paul. Verse 15 and 16. 
For we are, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 15, for we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. So it's, it's one aroma. It's one, it's one smell. Verse 16, to one a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. You need to understand, beloved, the foolishness of the gospel to those around you who don't know Christ. That doesn't mean you stop speaking the word of Christ to them, but you cannot be naive regarding how absurd this thing is. Jesus is life to those who are being saved, but he's as repulsive and ugly to those who are perishing like that bronze serpent that Moses lifted up in the desert. What do you mean? I, my salvation is looking at this? As Jesus Christ on the cross lifted high, my salvation is looking at that, believing that, trusting that? Who, who would want the Messiah like that? The world is snake-bitten, poisoned, delusional, darkened in their hearts and minds. They think they're enlightened. Just like someone who's been snake-bitten, they become delusional. And, and the, the world's moral compass, compass is twisted and upside down. Evil is good and good and is evil. What does the delusional Israelite say when given the bronze serpent? What does the delusional world say when given Jesus as their only savior? I don't need God to cure me. I don't need your God. I don't need this salvation. I'm not going to look at the cross. It's ugly. It's repulsive. That's not me. That's not what I deserve. I deserve better than that. That's, I am better than that. I am not a sinner. The absurdity of the gospel. What foolishness. To look at a bronze serpent and be healed. To look at and believe in Jesus Christ. And be saved. And yet God says, this is the way. This is the way. There is no other way. No, you must, you must not turn away from Christ. You must look at Christ. You must believe. You must know. You must be convinced of. You must entrust Christ with your entire life. Because it's only through his work and death that you're saved. And when you do that, as we noted this morning, faith seeking understanding. When you do that, you realize that Jesus is not absurd at all, but he's our very life. The cross of Christ is not folly at all, but it's the very revelation of God's wisdom and mercy to us who are being saved. Amen. Let us pray. <clears throat> oh, Father, help us, we ask. Help us to understand that we are in Christ by your grace alone. Not because we are wise in ourselves. We have no wisdom. Not because we are strong in ourselves. We have no strength. But because Christ was revealed to us through the power of the Spirit in the proclamation of the gospel, you brought us to Christ to see that far from being falling, the message of the cross is your wisdom. Father, help us to not shrink back in fear or in discouragement from speaking the only thing that can save people, the cross of Christ. And help us, Father, to see in our lives and in our lifetime 
you bring more to Christ. To bring others, Father, to the life that is in Christ through the, the preaching of the folly of the cross. And that, Father, we would not shrink back ever in fear. Even as this world grows more and more poisoned by the snake bite of Satan and lies. Help us, we pray, and we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.